welcome to National Treasure Hunt, the podcast where the secret lies not only with Charlotte, but also with your co-hosts. I'm Aubrey. And I'm Emily. And today's episode is one that, quite frankly, Emily and I have been planning for since the end of last season. (laughs) One could say that. I mean, because it involved ordering books. It did. And those books were not easy to find at that. (laughs) They were not. We had a couple phone calls about them. So today's episode is the first in what we will consider a four-part mini-series, if you will, that's going to let all of us collectively dive even deeper into the National Treasure fandom. That's because, fun fact, there is a four-part prequel series of books that have been written about the National Treasure franchise. And so each of these four episodes, you guessed it, we're diving into one of those books. And you know what? I'm stoked. Dude, I'm so excited. (laughs) I have mixed feelings on the book. We'll get into that in a couple minutes. But the fact that I got to read more about essentially like another National Treasure type treasure hunt was amazing. Well, that bodes well for our National Treasure TV series coming later this year, I'm sure. But that is neither here nor there. Today, the topic of our conversation is a book called Changing Tides, a Gates family mystery written by Katherine Hapka and published by Disney Press. And so we will get into, well, I guess this whole lore and legend in just a few moments because, Emily, we have to start the way we start all episodes our screams from Parkington Lane. Do you want to do? Do you want to try explaining what those are? Should I just? Oh no, you should definitely do. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, our screams from Parkington Lane are our periodic, nay, bi-weekly acknowledgments that Emily and I have descended very deep into that Parkington Lane pit. You know, the room before the treasure room at the end of National Treasure where someone literally falls to their death because they have gone so far deep down into this pit. That is how National Treasure affects my life. It affects Emily's life. And we're here to confess to you some of those uh, ways in which National Treasure has really infiltrated our, I guess you could say, every fiber of our being. So, Emily, do you have a scream to share this week? I have like a partial screen, which once again, for those of you who are new to the podcast, welcome to Emily uh, <laughs> as I present myself on this podcast. Uh, this is not, uh, it's maybe a newer thing for me, but it's not, uh, it's not surprising uh, that this is what's happening. Um, in another unsurprising turn of events, as part of my screen, I was reading this book that we are discussing this morning, the, the day of our recording. And as I was flipping from one page to the next, I like to do this thing where I try to kind of interpret what I think is about to happen and like say it in my head. And as I turned from one page to the next, I said a line from the movie in my head, but I then was like slightly disappointed to find out that that's not what was written in the book before I like had to backtrack and be like, well, yeah, because this is a book, it's not the movie. Wow. Yours are are better. What about you? (laughs) (laughs) So to be honest with you, I had a completely different scream prepared for today, but I have to scrap that scream because I had a very fresh scream happen. Like it's so fresh. It's still echoing in the depths of Parkington Lane. You know what I mean? You know what I mean? Yes. Much like 
the screams of Ian's henchmen could be heard as he fell. Oh, beautiful callback there. Um, yeah, so today's scream of mine, the day that we are recording this episode, uh, just so happens to be the day that Disney made some announcements about the new National Treasure streamer series. They announced the name, which is National Treasure Edge of History. Um, and they also announced that a preview would be coming out at the end of the current month. And SDCC! I'm, yeah, San Diego Comic-Con. Cool. Yeah, that, that thing. Um, they're airing a preview there. Anyway, I've had a scream like this before, but today it was just so obvious to me that whenever a piece of national treasure news breaks, it literally takes over my entire day. Like, entire day. I had an afternoon where I was going to sit down, do some writing assignments for work, et cetera, et cetera. And all of a sudden, I feel like I have to be like, Posting on Twitter, posting on Instagram, putting it in the Instagram stories, replying to everyone who's tagging us in this. Like, it's a whole thing. And it just like, it ups the heart rate, you know? <laughs> um, so that was my day today. And I just, I had to share. Well, thank you, Aubrey, for doing that. For those of you that don't know, Aubrey is the queen in charge of our social media. And she does a, just a fantastic job with it. So thank you, Aubrey, for all that you do. If you would like to follow us on social media, speaking of social media, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at NT Hunt Podcast. We are also available to listen to on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And last but not least, I forgot that I didn't do it when we started this section, so I have to do it now. You can find our website, nthuntpodcast.com, where we have links to pages about our book, about our tour, about the podcast itself, links to our merch store, links to our social media feeds. If you can't remember what I just said, just go to the website. It'll be fine. You'll find us there. Go ahead, like, subscribe, rate, review, comment, do whatever you can on those platforms. Let us know that you are listening with us and especially let us know your thoughts on this book, which we are going to talk about. And I'd like to point out that though podcasting is not a visual medium, both Aubrey and I are consistently holding our books up to the screen as we talk about them. So just picture if you will in your mind's eye uh us frantically flailing our books around uh as we discuss things i just screenshotted us so guess who's about to save that picture <laughs> this kid um okay so without further ado it is time for us to dive into the one and only book called changing tides a gates family mystery. Now, A Gates Family Mystery, as we said, four-part book series. And let's be real, these are children's books. Yeah, yeah. I, I saw some some comments on Goodreads that said that they were a little too simple for some folks. <laughs> I found it just challenging enough for my childlike mind. So I was actually really intrigued by this, and I would love to ask you, Emily, what you think the intended age range is for the, these books, because, you know, on first glance, it's very clearly in my mind, um, you know, like a student level book, you, you flip to any random page and there's like this pretty border around the outside. It's, you know, 
it's not what you think of when you think of opening up any of, I don't know, the books that you or I have on our bookshelves. Um, but when I was actually reading it, there were definitely some words and even some concepts that I felt were fairly mature. Yeah, I feel like maybe like a sixth grade reading level. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm thinking middle school, generally. Okay, sixth grade is middle school. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree that there were some concepts in here that were a little, might be a little difficult to grab for some younger readers. And, and even, I will say, the plot itself um, was not as straightforward, I think, as it it could have been if it was intended for younger readers than the middle school level. Yeah, I think that's true. I also think it's it's worth noting that um, while this book and I guess this mini series as a whole is about Ben Gates' ancestors and their relationship with treasure hunting writ large, I don't think that the books are fully dependent on like having seen the movies. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think also that these were just a really, it was a really interesting idea that they made these books because I could really see this helping to turn National Treasure e- into even more of a teaching aid, um, especially across disciplines in like middle school. So across history, you know, English, et cetera. And as you'll see here, it can turn National Treasure even more into um, some more, I guess, more frequent uh, discussion or no, more timely discussions about what may or may not be um, politically correct social commentary yeah social commentary is definitely in here we'll get into that for sure in true national treasure hunt fashion um before we get started though i do feel like i have to mention that you know we said there are four books in this series there were supposed to be two additional books so it was supposed to be a six-parter and those two final books were written but they were never published so keep that in mind as we progress through the series because that might I don't know, affect some interpretation, affect how far the story goes, etc. Now, of course, you do not have to have read this book to follow along today. Uh, the way this episode is going to work, we're going to format this like our film recap and commentary episodes. So think episode one, episode 11. We're going to go through the book's story step by step. And of course, add our own commentary about national treasure, our overall opinions, things that we like, things that we didn't like. You know how we work here. Yes, get ready. All right, so without further ado, let's jump right in, I guess, with the beginning of the book. Let's do this thing. Let's jump into the water, which is something that these characters do not do, thankfully. But if they did, it would have made it more similar to National Treasure. Anyway, (laughs) we jump right in, meeting our protagonist named Samuel Thomas Gates, someone that we will come to know as Sam throughout this lovely book. Sam is the son of, wait for it, Benjamin Patrick Gates. (laughs) I loved it. I loved it immediately. It was so great. I mean, to be fair, right off the bat, I really appreciated this because you, everyone here on our podcast or on our social media knows my whole thing about like, whenever you're creating a new world inspired by National Treasure, cough, cough, the TV series, cough, How are you going to make it connect to actual national treasure? They wasted no time in this book. Oh, no. They were very clear on the assignment. 
<laughs> understood the assignment. Yes. Um, so Benjamin Patrick Gates, Sam's dad, is a clockmaker who just happens to love puzzles and codes. And the family is based in London. Couple more expository points here. Sam is 18 years old. That's something I found surprising. I thought he would be a lot younger if this was for a younger audience. He comes across as younger to me a lot throughout the book. Maybe that's just me. Um, and then Sam's older, substantially buffer brother, William, will also become relevant. And those are your characters. <laughs> yes, William, you can think of William as probably being played by like a Liam Hemsworth. If yes. we were putting this in movie form. I think that is very well said. Right off the bat, though, the fact that uh, the dad is a clockmaker. I don't know if this happened for you at all. I'm guessing it didn't. I was immediately taken back um, to our conversation with Charles Seegers when he was talking about how he had this cool idea for like a movie he had about the Anacathera mechanism, which is like a clock mechanism that was found underwater. I thought of that immediately. Oh, yeah. It'll come as no surprise that I didn't remember that. But now that you're mentioning it, I do remember that. And I kind of wish he had like made that a reality because that was a really interesting concept. Maybe one day. Anyway, we immediately get another National Treasure reference here because this Gates family led by the hardworking, puzzle-loving Benjamin Patrick Gates um, this is a hardworking and respectable family, but that respectability was quickly quashed at the beginning of this book by the dad Benjamin's naive speculations. Basically, he was swindled out of all of the family's money by giving all of his savings over to some like new world journey to the Americas that like wasn't actually real. So he was like literally swindled out of his money. Yeah, I mean, you. Start, I feel like we start the book and we are in like a nice, a nice place with everyone for the first, I don't know, couple pages. Really, <laughs> uh, it's not that long of a book, and immediately you're kind of brought to, or I was at least brought to, like, well, where is the fighting for the family name? Where's that going to come in? Because that always seems like something we've talked about it in both of these movies. Uh, it is something that is constant throughout is that Ben is always fighting for the Gates family name. And my, did they bring, they brought the tone down. They, they really, they started him from the bottom. And then by the end, we are there, as some would say in the song version. Wow. I'm beautiful, Emily. Um, but what I found interesting here um, beyond that, very poignant explanation of Benjamin Patrick Gates' fall from grace. Um, what's interesting to me is that Sam, as the younger son in the family, he sees his father as foolish. He is not cool with what's happened here. He truly, he, he feels bad, but he also blames his father. And so I find this to be an interesting role reversal compared to our national treasure where Patrick, the father, finds his son Ben to be foolish for his own version of speculating or quote unquote wasting his life on on what he thinks he should be doing i.e treasure hunting um yeah so, no that's very true so basically in order to try to 
I guess you could say, regenerate their fortune um, and be more secure and stable, Sam and William, the two sons, basically answer an ad from the Virginia company that's looking for colonists to join the as yet young English settlement in Jamestown, Virginia. So basically travel from London to Jamestown, Virginia, and be part of setting up the American colonies. And on their journey, their long journey on a boat, which this chapter felt so long to me, but that's just (laughs) opinions. Um, We spent a lot of time on this boat over the ocean, and that boat is called the Susan Constant. We meet two key characters on the Susan Constant. One is Jasper. Jasper is a violent treasure hunter. Spoiler alert, he is our villain. And Mm -hmm. two, we meet Elias, and his time with us is short. He will die very shortly on the boat. However, He is an older gentleman uh, claiming to have a clue leading to treasure and apparently all people are thinking about on this journey over all they're talking about when they're not drowning all of their sorrows in a lot of alcohol. Um, Again, questionable content for sixth graders, but anyway, all they're talking about is treasure because I guess everyone going over there is a wannabe treasure hunter. Apparently that's a thing. Um, yeah, Jasper's talking about a different kind of treasure than uh, Elias seems to be talking about. So, like, it's not even just that we're all treasure hunters. It's, like, everybody kind of has, like, not everybody, but, like, people have these, like, different treasures that they think are there. And, like, you kind of, like, at least with... um. Elias, we understand, like, we we get a little background from where his, like, thought that there is a treasure comes from, but with Jasper, we don't really get that context. Yeah, so there, you're right, there are a couple of mythical treasures being referenced here. One of them, interestingly, they refer to as the treasure of the ancients, and someone describes it as, get this, quote-unquote, it had been spirited off to the wilds of the new world too great for one man end quote does that sound familiar to you at all ding 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 hello too great for one man freemason teachings up in this joint yeah i mean this seems super reminiscent of the fabled templar treasure in national treasure and so since this is supposed to be a prequel book i am immediately wondering Are they all after the Templar treasure and they just don't know it? But I will point out that Jasper also mentions the quote-unquote fabled city of gold. Yeah. So we are just hitting all of the national treasure buzzwords already. We we really, we started off strong in this book. Like, you could tell that uh, Catherine Hafka, the author, was a little uncertain about whether or not she would be able to I guess, uh, keep people past the first couple pages. So really within, I want to say the first like 10 to 20 pages, we get like, bam, 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 national treasure hunt references just right there. And then they kind of like get a little more abstract as we go on. Um, It's not quite at like literal thing, like the city of gold is not mentioned again. Mm-hmm. So I feel like it, I feel like it was really kind of piled in the beginning to kind of like pull readers in. Yeah. And then, as I said, it gets a little more 
gets a little more abstract going forward. But we'll we'll get there. We'll get there. We will. Um so yeah, Jasper was the one who mentioned the City of Gold. We already discussed that he'll end up being the villain. I personally think there are a lot of parallels to him having read the book in full. There's a lot of parallels to Ian, our villain from National Treasure 1, because he definitely has a greed motive. And because he at least now knows Sam a little bit from this boat ride, there is some pre-existing relationship between our protagonist and our villain before the treasure hunt actually begins. So I felt that to be very, fairly parallel to the Ben and Ian relationship. Hmm. Yeah, I can definitely see that. I, I was not a fan of Jasper from the beginning. I don't oh. think we were supposed to be. Awful. Um, I will say I was a bit of a fan of Ian. So like, you know, but that's because it was Sean Bean. But anyway, Jasper is a, just a truly despicable human being and um he portrays some wonderful wonderful aspects of toxic masculinity which mm. we love to see um and ageism um yes and and ageism um i think the thing that really stuck out to me more was the toxic masculinity just because you know i'm always on my like patriarchy smashing like, I mean, you haven't come out of your patriarchy corner in a while, so. Yeah, I, I will come out a couple times, um, but this is the first one. Uh, Jasper at one point criticizes Sam when he's talking to William, Sam's brother, about this, and he criticizes Sam by basically saying that Sam isn't a man, and then says he's not even a boy because a boy grows up to become a man. And it's clear that Sam is not going to do that. And he literally just said that because Sam is prone to like retreating when confronting with adversity instead of being like an example of a toxic man and just like brute forcing fighting it out. He's like, oh, let me step back from this and like think about it. There's nothing wrong with that. That does not make you less of a man. To those of you who are listening, please be more like Sam, not Jasper. That PSA was brought to you by Emily's Patriarchy Corner. Um, but yeah, no, a lot of problems here as Jasper is now trying to get any hint of information he can out of Elias because Elias apparently has some information. Now, we learn because Sam sort of befriends Elias we learn a little bit about what that information is. It's a bit complicated, but we can summarize it as such. Basically, Elias has a letter from a cousin of his who has since died. Uh, that cousin had traveled to Jamestown a few years ago. Um, he had gone in the first place in search of a great uncle who had disappeared at the Lost Roanoke Colony. History buzzwords. And this letter urges Elias and his brother, brother has also since died, to come to the new world to indulge in a treasure. And this letter is fairly innocuous. But Sam notices immediately that only three words pretty much in the whole letter are capitalized, and they're the words wax, light, and constant. Now, immediately, we're going to see how Sam deduces this in just a moment, but this was a clear callback in my mind to how Ian noticed that the word silence was capitalized in the Meerschaum pipe clue and then how that meant it was the like it's it was a name it was important it was you know capitalized and so that made it a clue did you catch yeah, I that definitely, I, I got that 
I definitely, I immediately thought of the Ian thing and was, like, waiting for these things to be, like, names of some sort. And, mm. I mean, only the constant was really mm-hmm. a name. Um, I don't know why I thought Wax or Light was going to be a name, but I, I really, I was like, it can't be that simple. It can't just be talking about Wax and Light. Like, Well, Ben it. Gates would say, could it really be that simple? And then place a pipe into a wall. Anyway, I digress. Um, before Sam cracks the clue, a couple of other important things happen. We learn that Elias himself has been traveling to Jamestown to, quote, revive the fortune and reputation of his family, just like Ben in National Treasure. And before he dies on the boat, which we're meant to believe he was poisoned by Jasper, Elias gives Sam a ring that he had been wearing. It belonged to Elias's brother and it's a ring with a basically an all-seeing eye on it. And based on Elias's commentary, we are meant to believe that Elias's brother was a Freemason who was apparently good at puzzles. Click, I click, have to click. Say, <laughs> Aubrey, you're going to hate me for this. But as soon as I saw the ring thing, I Sadusky's immediately ring? went to <laughs> Oh, yeah. I am, I am banking on that ring coming up again and reappearing in every book and eventually being Sadusky's ring. I am banking on it. And then what would that family's going to give it to Sadusky? No, I think they're related. Think Sadusky and the Gates are related? Yeah. Oh, whoa. Bombs being dropped over here on National Treasure Hunt, folks. Oh my, it's not, I mean, who knows what's going to happen? And you know, what's the sad part? We're not going to know how it ends because those last two books weren't published. So So you can always just say that that was the case, even if we don't read it. And we absolutely will. This is how rumors start. Um, Now, later on in the book, Sam is going to be reminiscing about how he wishes Elias and Elias's cousin were part of this treasure hunt. Um, And there is a line in the book that I just have to pick out here. It says, quote, but we can honor his memory now by solving the puzzle he so carefully laid out for his cousins. And that's like almost verbatim of like Patrick telling Ben in National Treasure, like you did it for all of us. You you understood the meaning of it. All of these great men in history, they laid out all these plans and you solved the puzzles. You understood the meaning of it. And I was like, wow, we're really pumping in the parallels. Um, But those parallels, as you mentioned, Emily, begin to cease a little bit as we get into a unique story. Um, To crack the first clue, I found that this this clue cracking, if you will, was the most tenuous probably of all of them. Oh my gosh, we're in the, I, so many problems with this. Let me explain what happens and then you can explain your problems, although I suspect it will be quite obvious. Sam decides that he needs to break into the captain's cabin on the ship because the quote unquote constant in the letter is rem- like representative of the Susan Constant ship. That's the ship's name. Um, and then he found in the cabin a box of wax candles, but that ended up being like the wrong interpretation. Instead, the right interpretation was a candle lit lantern remember the word light, and the lantern had an inscription that read, those lost leave their mark 
Hail the Crown, Heed the Dark, written by White in 1590. Please diatribe. Okay. Like, first of all, the constant thing, sure. Like, I get, yeah, the boat, sure. Why that meant you need to go into the captain's quarters? No idea. Um, Wax. We, we looked at wax candles and that seems right. And I, I do appreciate that we got to see the thinking of the character as he went through and was like, well, it can't be, it's probably not wax candles because they can't, like the person who made these clues wouldn't have been able to guarantee that the same candle would be here. And like, I did appreciate that a lot. But then, like, we jumped from, oh, it's not this box of candles to, oh, it's this lantern that happens to hold a candle. So I guess we're getting both light and wax in there. But it didn't, you didn't, I would have, I would have thought you would have had to, like, light a candle to see something. Um, or, like, the wax would have to drip somewhere. And it was just on the lantern. I agree with at literally everything you said for the first time in history. Um, specifically, I'm so glad you mentioned the point that like we really do get to see the characters thinking here. And this is something I was gonna bring up later because as this keeps happening throughout the book, this seems to really be a difference between like the written book format where you have a lot more space and time to delve into things compared to the movie format where you really just have to make logical leaps um, and assume that your audience is going with you. Um, I agree, though, if they had if he had misinterpreted this clue um, and that the inscription was the clue, he's about to get off that boat and never be on that boat again. So, like, hope you're right. <laughs> also, just speaking to this point about the about us being able to get a chance to, like, understand the thoughts of the character as he's solving the clues. And, and maybe this will come up a little bit more later, but I'll, I'll mention it now just because we're on the topic of it. One of the things that I found myself kind of thinking about Sam throughout this book was like that he's not as great of a treasure hunter as the book, I feel like, wants us to think he is or as he thinks he is. And I'm now realizing that part of that might be because of the fact that we get to see what goes on in his head and all of mm. the incorrect conclusions that he comes to about the different clues and then him realizing the right way of doing things whereas if you look at ben in the national treasure movies you he makes a mistake like once or twice but it's it's usually corrected very quickly oh yeah but we don't get to see especially like with that first clue when he's figuring out the clue when they're on the are like in the charlotte basically um we basically get none of any context for how he's solving that clue he just does it and that to me is what makes him like such a good treasure hunter because it just seems like he just has the answer when in reality he probably like did think about it for a little bit i think that's a really good point that's a really good point um so basically our ship arrives in Jamestown and immediately off the boat, all of the passengers are warned of the quote unquote savages. 
Now, I'm imagining you understand, everyone listening in, that that is the term in this case for the native population in America, in the new world. Um, right off the bat, throughout this book, we get some extremely rough characterizations of the native people. They're referred to throughout the book, I've made a list here, as savages, as pets, as creatures, and with the adjective nasty. And I bring this up because this was really hard to read. Mm -hmm. um, but I also understand that the author did this because that is how the colonists would have spoke about the native people, as despicable as that is. And there's also a point here, um, it's kind of spoiler alert, the characters are going to end up working with one of the natives at, at one point. And so this also serves to create a very distinct dichotomy between the um, between how Sam and his treasure hunting friends, who we'll meet soon, um, how they refer to the native people, they do not say savages, um, and everyone else, like clear difference here. Yeah, I, I definitely, I agree with you. It was really hard to read. And I do, like you said, understand why the author chose to use this terminology. And it kind of brings to me as something for uh, probably a more in-depth discussion at another point, but something I just want to mention is it brings to me this idea of like the line between representing history as accurately as possible, even if it contains harmful elements and sanitizing history to an extent where we're trying to be more politically correct about the types of things that we're saying in our retelling of history. And I'm just, I think there's a fine line between those, those two things where I can see, I can see arguments for both sides, honestly. Um, like I said, I think this is a discussion not for this episode, but I just, I thought it was interesting. Yeah, I agree. And I also think that even your take on, on where you stand on that line is a little context specific. Um, mm -hmm. And there are some current events in the news right now that I think would make you almost say the opposite. And so it's, it's, it's a very complicated question. And we, mm -hmm. maybe that'll be another ethics episode at some point. We could do ethics of the books, maybe. <laughs> um, anyway, upon arriving in Jamestown, uh, Sam and his brother William have to get jobs so that they can start making money. The goal is eventually, we don't learn this until later, the goal is to eventually send for their parents, basically, and have their parents move to the new world. But they need money to do that. And so Sam ends up working for the colony's record keeper, Mr. Martin, um, pretty much because Sam is able to read and write. And William, Mr. Liam Hemsworth, buff guy, um, ends up working as a blacksmith. Now, and another important thing here, it will become important, is that the governor of the Jamestown colony is named Thomas Gates, who's apparently of no relation to the Gates family, which is shocking to me. I honestly thought, spoiler alert, it's not this, but I honestly thought it was going to be revealed that they were related. Yeah, it's almost weird to me that they didn't do that because it's almost more confusing that they're not related. Um, but he does 
the governor Gates does take a liking to Sam, who he considers his quote unquote namesake. Um, so at this point, we also meet two more important char characters, and these are the children of Sam's employer, Mr. Martin. His eldest son is named Hal, and his daughter, well, the daughter that we get to know, her name is Elizabeth or Liz. Um, Hal is going to be somewhere between deplorable and not deplorable throughout this whole book. He's very, he's a very complex and confusing character. It's deplorable to me. And um, Liz will end up being Sam's close friend and confidant. Sam also has like a thing for her. And here's a here's a patriarchy moment for you, Em. Sam uh, describes Elizabeth at one point as extraordinary because she quote shook his hand with a grip as firm as a man's and she also insists that he call her Liz instead of Miss Elizabeth and later on in the book Liz is quote-unquote full of surprises because she can climb a tree I don't like it <laughs> now of course this is also a reference to be fair again to the dynamics of the time period um but it does also remind me ever so slightly of Ben and Riley's shock at Abigail's intellect in the very beginning of National Treasure. Yeah, I think I think with this one, I was a little less inclined to kind of not write it off because I definitely didn't write off the portrayal of the people native to the land um, as like okay in the way that they were being described. I did not write this off as being okay because of the fact that we do see that a similar dynamic in the National Treasure movies, mm. which made me think that like it go it extends beyond just a time period thing in this uh, world, I guess, world or franchise as we may say. Yeah, so we'll see how that dynamic plays out. But um, in the meantime, Sam decides that he needs a little bit of help deciphering this clue that he thinks he's found on the lantern on the ship. So he decides he's going to go visit the widow of Elias's cousin. Maybe, maybe the cousin said something to his wife and, and that could be passed on to Sam. And, and the widow says that Elias's cousin's last words were, look to the south. Now, Emily, correct me if I'm wrong. Does this ever come up again? No, thank you. <laughs> I have no idea why they put this in here. They made it seem like it was a big thing. Like he was like, oh, he must have wanted to entrust someone with those last words. And I was thinking like parallels to like uh, the, the beginning of National Treasure 2 Book of Secrets when we see um, Charles Carroll of Carrollton like mm -hmm. dying in his horse and buggy. That's not what it was. Carriage, whatever. and he's like his final words and I'm like oh it's gonna be important like that no they mm -hmm. were just literally just like a man's words yeah another piece that I'm gonna throw in here uh very quickly because it will become important I just wanted to keep everything in like order of it happening in the book at this time Liz also introduces Sam to Marachana um and I'm going to apologize right off the bat if I pronounce that name or any name incorrectly in um this story but Marachana is actually Pocahontas's sister so like we are 
name dropping historical <laughs> events and people now as much as we were name dropping if you will national treasure references at the beginning well anyway the what the point to bring up now is that when liz introduces marachana to sam it's kind of a point of embarrassment and shame because she's not supposed to be friends with this girl um it has to be kept a secret and so obviously anything that's a secret is going to cause a problem later guess we can find out where that goes but anyway we got this bit of information from um, Elias's cousin's widow we now have an ally uh, in Marachana and Liz at this point um, so Sam uses all the records in his boss Mr. Martin's shop to try to find more information to find you know the next clue in Mr. Martin's records, Sam learns that the colony's shoemaker is related to a man who traveled to Jamestown with John White in 1590. Um, so this was part of the journey that discovered that the Roanoke colony had disappeared. Mm -hmm. um, and this shoemaker explains that all that John White and, and the other folks on the boat found was the name of a tribe, Croatoan, inscribed on a tree on the Roanoke premises, if you will. Um, and Sam thinks that this mark, Croatoan, is really a reference to the line, those lost leave their mark on from the lantern inscription. And he now at this point confides in Liz about the treasure and she will be an ally and a co-conspirator, if you will, of his for the rest of the for the rest of the, I was about to say movie, but it's a book. Um, and I will say right off the bat, the, those lost leave their mark. As soon as we read that on the lantern, I don't know about you. I was like, that's obviously Roanoke because they had just mentioned Roanoke a few pages earlier. And I was like, oh, it's that kind of kid's book, like where it's going to be really obvious. Well, spoiler alert, not all these clues are going to be obvious. <laughs> I also, I like that you felt that that was obvious because I, in typical fashion I did not cool um I aside from hearing you mention the Roanoke colony uh in your kind of what you think National Treasure 3 should maybe focus on I honestly had no context for that before this book so I gave it like no second thought when they mentioned it and then didn't know anything about them being like lost so didn't know that that was going to be related I'm sorry, the Roanoke colony, the lost colony at Roanoke is like the most interesting part of American history, in my humble opinion. I like um, don't remember learning it. But also this book, the way they just like throw in all the history buzzwords, I feel like they used up a lot of my National Treasure 3 ideas. I was noticing that. Um, which I thought was really funny. And the I'm laughing only because I don't think it really uses them up because no one knows these books exist. That's true. <laughs> Also, we didn't, like, get too, too much with the Roanoke. Like, no, they were, like, mentioned, but, like, we didn't really dive into anything with them. So Right, right, right. So at this point, Hal, Liz's brother, gets looped into the treasure convos because he overhears Sam and Liz talking about the treasure. And more importantly, he saw Liz with Matachana. And so he's going to hold that relationship over Liz's head unless he is included in the treasure hunt. Um, and so this begins Hal being a really questionable figure, a really questionable character. It doesn't help that all throughout the book, Hal wants to join forces with 
Jasper, and Hal even tries to steal Elias's letter once he finds out that it exists. From the moment he opened his mouth, was like, no. Like, sir, I need you to leave the room. You have no place in this conversation. You are threatening your own sister. Like, this is like, this is like problematic male behavior at its finest, I feel like. Uh, not, not great, Bob. Not great. Well, and it just, there's another huge contrast here because Sam is going to be shown as like the complete opposite of Hal. Honestly, at some points I'm like, Sam, you're being way too nice to Hal right now and you're driving me crazy. But a great example of this, Hal will end up getting in trouble with the governor and Sam actually vouches for Hal just so that he can get, in this case, Elias's letter back. And quick thing right here for you, you were talking about earlier, trying to predict the next line being right from the movie. We almost get that here. Um, Sam says, I wasn't planning to blackmail you. Besides, I'm no good at such negotiations. Did you catch that? I did catch that. I was like, oh, yes, Ben, you need to learn how to bargain. <laughs> uh, so I, one thing I wanted to say here is a part of what, so I think what I, what I was going into the book expecting, and a little bit from what you had told me, because you started reading the book a little before me, was that there was going to be a kind of a parallel character layout to the movies. There was going to be our Ben, there was going to be our Abigail, there was going to be our Riley, and then we were going to have like our Ian or Mitch kind of person. And obviously, or maybe not obviously, with Sam and Liz, we have kind of our Ben and Abigail type people, although I'll argue that Liz doesn't really contribute that much intellectually to the treasure hunt. It, it's basically mostly Sam. But I there were definitely times where the book was painting Hal as the Riley figure, but there were also times when he was like clearly supposed to be the Ian figure. And I was very confused about like how I was supposed to be viewing this character. But, and I'm not saying this to like ruffle your feathers. What I found interesting about that, I mean, folks don't know this yet because our book isn't out yet, but in our book, in our section talking really in depth about Riley, at times there are like, depending on how you're looking at Riley, sometimes there are similarities of his to Ian as compared to Ben, like his motives and like wanting not not greed per se, but like wanting the money and, and things like that, wanting the fame. And so maybe Hal is kind of embodying both sides of that just more extremely. Yeah, yeah, uh, definitely more extremely. Mm-hmm. I think, oh. and I think that was the problem that I had. There were, there were definitely times when I was like, because, you know, we're working on the book right now where I was thinking like, oh, well, this is not, not completely unlike Riley, but then he would like go and do something and I would be like, Riley would never do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> okay, well, let's continue because honestly, I, another thing I'll say is that the pace of the book is a little weird. Oh my gosh. It just, all of it is thrown in at the end. Like, yes, get ready for a roller coaster, folks. The next couple of minutes here are just going to be like clue after clue yeah. after clue and solving things. And then bam, there's the treasure. Yeah, it's, yeah. Oh, okay. So Liz and Sam decide that, recall on the lantern clue, there were two words, mark and crown, amongst many other words, but they decide these are the two important ones (laughs) and that they need to focus on. And Marachana tells them that there is a well-known Croatoan headdress 
which now just so happens to conveniently be in the possession of her very own father, Chief Powhatan. So what does this mean? Sam needs to sneak into Chief Powhatan's longhouse to examine the headdress. And now this is really high stakes because if he's caught, not only will he get in trouble, but this could result in war between the native people and the colonists. And right off the bat, I just got to say, this is very reminiscent of Ben having to sneak into the Queen's study or the Oval Office. There is not, mm. there is not war at stake here, but like True. big felonious action, right? Um, anyway, it's very dramatic, but Sam succeeds. This is a children's book after all. Um, and he finds that the headdress has a symbol on it, which he describes as a crooked arrow with a circle around its tip. And so now he needs to figure out what that means. There's a couple pages dedicated to him being like, I have no idea what this means. And then he just so happens to find a map in Mr. Martin's papers once again that has a hill on the map. And the hill is shaped like an arrow, specifically like the arrow on the headdress. And I've just got to say, I really wish there was a picture of this in the book because I really want to know how a hill can be shaped like an arrow. But what's, that's fine. That's fine. Whatever. Um, he and Liz end up finding the hill using the map from Mr. Martin's papers. And they just like try digging up the hill because obviously the treasure's there, right? They naturally find nothing. We're only halfway through the book. Anyway, um, they dig up the hill. Nothing's there. And then all of a sudden, Sam, not Ben, is like, huh, it wasn't just an arrow. There was also a circle involved in this symbol weird i wonder if that's important and that means to him he decides that it is meant to indicate the full moon over the hill and like i'm sorry but here is where i need to step in and say something ben ben's interpretation of the clues in national treasure and book of secrets always felt founded on something like there was some kind of historical thing that he knew that made the clue make sense sam is literally just guessing he's like oh here's a circle you know what else is round well actually no he's like oh here's the circle jk not gonna worry about that and then he's like oh wait the circle might be important now that we've dug up this thing and nothing's there hmm what's shaped like a circle let me tell you sam a lot of things are shaped like a circle that aren't the moon how did you get to the moon well, he is very good at guessing because at night he and Liz and Hal, because Hal is always following them, um, they basically see where the shadow of the hill is pointing as a result of the full moon. Now, this reminded me of Daylight Saving Time a little bit yeah. because it's like, oh, if it didn't happen to be the full moon that night, are we waiting another month or whatever? But there's also a scene in Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark that's somewhat similar to that. Oh my gosh. But it's sunlight. So I would say movie magic, but now I guess this is just media magic. Book um, magic. Book magic. Anyway, the shadow points to a grassy clearing near a creek, and they dig up that spot, and this time they find a small metal box that's holding three gold coins. Now, naturally, this is not the treasure, although at first they think that it is. I do have to say, though, M. The lead up and the suspense to digging up this little box, very big. By the time we get to the actual treasure later, very small. Did you notice that? It's just like, 
oh, hey, we found this thing. <laughs> okay, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. Um, anyway, each of the three gold coins has a different symbol. And they apparently look like the letters Y, Z, and T. And again, they initially are wondering if this is the treasure and like maybe there was more found by others at some point, kind of like the antechamber fake out in National mm -hmm. Treasure. Um, but they soon realize that it's actually another clue, which to all of us is obvious. And also they're obviously not a Y, a Z, and a T, like duh, but anyway. Um, but before they figure out what the clue means, they have to go get Hal's coin back because he sold it to Jasper because Hal's awful. And so naturally to get the coin back from Jasper, they drug Jasper, which could have ended really badly. But, you know, again, middle school reading level. What is happening? <laughs> I really enjoyed that part, to be honest. With I you. just want to know who is the intended audience for this book. And I'd like to say before people start getting honest about this, Aubrey and I thoroughly enjoyed this book yeah we are just doing what we do and finding things to nitpick about but we did thoroughly enjoy the book but there's a little inconsistency here between this being a book for a sixth grade reading level possibly and then like oh hey <laughs> let me just casually lace this guy's drink his alcohol nonetheless yeah um so anyway they finally take the opportunity to like look at the gold coins closer I guess because this is an Instagram era so they can't like up the contrast and like increase the sharpness and make it really easy to see so they actually have to look with their eyes at the gold coins and they notice that the Y letter is slightly off kilter and it has like a dot at the crux or the V if you will of of the letter and Marachana looks at it and says oh that's what this nearby river looks like and so like the Y is the river and the dot is marking where they have to go. So she takes them there. She takes them to that part of the river. Um, the Z on the coin is crooked looking. And apparently that just so happens to be the shape of a tree at the location where the dot is on the first coin. And that tree had been split by lightning causing its weird shape. And I'm over here like, um, I wonder when that tree was struck by lightning, when these gold coins were created, and then also why that dead tree hasn't fallen down, and if it ever would have, and then what that would have meant for the treasure hunt. But this makes so much more sense than the way I interpreted that clue, which I realized there's not like much room for interpretation because they just told us what it was. I'm a little afraid to ask you what you <laughs> thought because I don't want the listeners to be confused, but I'm going to ask you, what did you think? So I thought... I don't really know how, I think I just assumed like, oh, they found a tree that was by this river and that the Z itself was the lightning bolt. No. <laughs> Incorrect. <laughs> um, overruled. Okay. And then the T, well, it was apparently a lowercase T. And next to it, there's like an arrow symbol, another arrow. Um, but this sounds much more like a stereotypical arrow that has like four little feathers at the bottom. Now, this is where things get fun again. Apparently, the lowercase t is not a t. It is a cross indicating a Christian settlement. And the only Christian settlement nearby is Jamestown. And the four feathers on that arrow, Emily, that represents four paces. So four steps walking from the tree towards Jamestown. 
what in the world? How did we get four steps? Like, I, I understand the four, but like, what? Like, he was thinking steps before he even got to the four. It's true. He was like, oh, these little things on the arrow must mean paces. And I'm like, but do they? Must they? <laughs> I, I don't know. They kind of mean feathers to me, but hey. I don't know, Matt. It's just he's he's pulling some things out of his butt. Yeah. Well, here. he was right again because at that location of four paces, they dig up another metal box. And that box is filled with gunpowder. And on the box itself is the inscription M. Carta. Now, Emily, did you know that that meant Magna Carta when you saw it, I hope? Did you really not? No. So I will say that oh, sometimes God. I do this thing when I'm reading where I, like, my eyes purposely or not purposely, like, skim ahead a little bit from where I'm currently. So you saw like, Magna Carta. So I saw Magna Carta and, like, so I if you asked me that question very quickly, I'd be like, oh yeah, I thought it was Magna Carta, but then I had to think about it and realize that like the only reason I thought that was because I saw the word. Okay, well, it's very obvious to most readers as well as Sam um, that this means Magna Carta. And how does a box labeled Magna Carta and filled with gunpowder, how do you solve that clue? Well, very simply, gunpowder means cannons. And there are a bunch of cannons at the settlement's entrance. And the Magna Carta part indicates which cannon is important because all the cannons were apparently colloquially known as like different famous figures. So one of them was known as King John and King John signed the Magna Carta. I do have to say that when they opened this and saw the gunpowder, I immediately knew that it was the cannons that they needed to go to only because they had very randomly a little earlier in the story thrown in a convo between Sam and William where William is Sam's brother for those of you that may have forgotten uh where William was talking about being on like sentry duty and was like giving Sam fun facts about the cannons and I was like this is clearly like not what we need to be talking about right now and then I was like "Mm, that's why they talk about it yeah, it's true. Uh, and eventually they basically find an insignia on the cannon. Now, I will make a quick note here that is definitely not intentional, but there is a little national treasure connection here in that the Magna Carta is actually stored at the National Archives. Um, but this was another point I thought that really demonstrates the book's ability to reason out clues when they want to clearly not (laughs) clearly not all the time but when it wants to it can so we hear basically we see sam musing over the fact that well elias's cousin wouldn't have known if this cannon would be like moved over time so it can't mean to dig under the cannon because like the cannon could move so it must mean something about the cannon itself and i'm like in my mind I really enjoy when it does this and it does it a few times in the in the book um, because these are the things that I think of. It's actually really funny. There are multiple points in the book where I'll be writing because I did take notes and I would write like, but how did they know that the lantern would stay on the ship or how did they know something like that? And I would literally flip the page and it would say. Well, he couldn't have known the lantern would stay on the ship because and I'd be like, okay, cool, cool, cool. But yeah, I just had to point that out. Um, Anyway, the insignia on the cannon is of a clock face. 
And in this case, the clock face has the nine replaced with the letter W. And this is a fun one. This is our Riley moment of the book where Hal solves the clue immediately. He's actually useful for a hot second. He says that the W stands for Thomas West. He deduces this because the location of the W on the clock face is like the position of the West on a compass, which makes sense, I guess, but whatever. Anyway, Thomas West is also known as Baron de la War, and he owned one of the only clocks in Jamestown. And guess where that clock now is located? It's now in the governor's house. Another fun plot point. The only reason we knew the clock was in the governor's house was because earlier in the book, there had been a little like miscommunication situation where people thought that Sam's brother, William, had stolen this I even document. What it was, document from the governor's house and were like blaming it on him. And apparently it was Hal that actually stole it. I forget was why. Was that true? I thought it, he, he blamed it on a dog, but did he ever confirm that he actually stole it himself? I think how it was, yeah, because I think he said it in this moment because they mm. were like, well, how did you know? And he's like, well, I when I was stealing this thing, I noticed <laughs> that there was a clock in the governor's office. And I was just like, man, we're really covering our, we're covering our tracks here. Which we can appreciate. I think we can all agree. But anyway, uh, now it's Liz's moment to shine because she sneaks into the governor's house and takes the clock. I would like to make a note that at this point, how, or I guess right before this point, how makes a big deal out of how it's basically impossible to get in the governor's house and steal this clock, which reminded me begrudgingly of Riley when Riley was telling Ben that it was impossible to steal the Declaration of Independence. Yeah, there are two big Riley-ish moments right back to back there. Um, so anyway, Liz takes the clock. Um, it is like decorated in a vine pattern that apparently looks like a map. And it has a single jewel in the pattern. And that, I guess, is marking, quote unquote, the spot. It's like jewel marks the spot. And there's an inscription on the clock that says, knowledge is the true wealth of ancients. And just to get one more jab in there, this clock had been made by Sam's dad, Benjamin Patrick. Why was that necessary? I think it was just a cute full circle moment. It definitely isn't actually relevant. Anyway, Sam, Liz, and Hal follow the vine map to a clearing and basically very quickly dig up um, a large trunk. Well, yeah, and now we're running out of pages. So yeah, we got to get this in. <laughs> seriously. And again, less anticipatory fanfare in the writing of the unearthing of this trunk compared to the smaller boxes, which was very strange. Um, and the trunk, it turns out, is filled with ceremonial Native American objects. And so they basically describe it as a Native treasure. Sam in this instance, says, well, he basically explains the concepts of intrinsic and cultural value, which I found to be very mature for a kid's book. Mm -hmm. And this is when I'm questioning how old we think the readers are again. Like, are they early high school, maybe? Maybe we're just trying to instill these values. Maybe. I mean, it's, it's, it's a beautiful sentiment. It's just interesting for the audience. So basically, Sam says because of this, he doesn't feel right taking it. He says, quote, it's valuable to them, the Native Americans, part of their history, like a connection to their ancestors. It's more important than just another trunk of Spanish gold, more important than mere money, end quote. 
and so say if y'all could see Emily's face right now um now naturally at this point Jasper jumps out from behind a bush and has a knife at Matachana's throat yeah we hadn't seen Jasper in a while he had to pop back up well that's because throughout this book can I just say up until this point Jasper's villainry has included trying to toss Sam overboard on the boat in the beginning shooting Sam with an arrow trying to frame William for stealing something from the governor's house oh yeah yeah and trying to strangle Liz so he's literally threatened the life of everyone a very violent person this Jasper yeah clearly well also what happens now in very like scooby-doo or like cartoon fashion we get groups of people showing up on the scene all just randomly at this moment we have chief powhatan and his crew including pocahontas they're arriving on the scene and governor gates and his crew arrive on the scene and chief powhatan threatens war with the colonists if jasper harms matachana i mean kind of fair and to ease the tension Sam basically, in the spur of the moment, turns over the trunk as a gift from the people of Jamestown to the native tribe. And apparently, the, this native treasure had been lost several generations ago. It was at this point that I got chills begrudgingly. Because of National Treasure Connections or? Just because it was a sweet thing. Okay, well, my chills, if I had any, were because. We have very clear National Treasure parallels here in National Treasure 1 when Ben and Sadeski are discussing the Templar treasure in Trinity Church and they say, you know, give it to the people. So basically give it to the people who it belongs to. And in National Treasure 2 Book of Secrets, the concept of Ben telling the president he can have a role in returning this ancient Native American treasure to the descendants of basically those who owned it. Mm -hmm. um there's also here an implication that jasper is being dragged off to prison which i quite enjoyed someone's got to go to prison jasper sam anyway um so at this point we're at our falling action we're at our resolution it's like a multi-step resolution first governor gates basically says this colony owes you a debt of gratitude and sam says part of any credit owed belongs to the entire gates family after all i am who i am because of them and at this point i'm like all right cute i appreciate the callback to national treasure but it's a little bit forced especially since in this particular case in changing tides the gates family literally had nothing to do with this no they make a whole thing at the end about sam actually telling william about yeah about the thing and william was like this was going on under my nose the whole time exactly that's a really good point i'm like they had no part yeah so that was again cute but a little much um the second part of the conclusion here is that chief powhatan welcomes sam and liz into his settlement which is like big deal none of the colonists can be in the settlement um and that's where Sam and Liz learned that the treasure had been found at one point by the Roanoke colonists and they reburied it elsewhere, which is extremely rude. And as a result, according to the native tribe, they believe that the Roanoke colonists were cursed by the gods and seen no more on these shores. That is a quote, the implication being that since we really don't know what happened to the Roanoke colonists, this book is not purporting to give an answer. It's saying, you know, they disappeared because they did a bad thing. 
Um, Chief Palatan then gives Liz and Sam the English objects that were at the bottom of the trunk. This includes coins and spoons and, oh wait, a gold ring encrusted in jewels. I can't. I mean, apparently this is one extremely, extremely valuable ring because that alone is considered a treasure and could like apparently bring Sam's whole family over with lots to spare. Um, also, we get Emily's favorite moment where Sam kisses Liz, just like Ben kissing Abigail. It's also very forced. It's in front of this whole tribe, which like, is that even appropriate? I'm not sure. I wasn't a huge fan of the way that the kiss happened. I would have preferred if there was a conversation first. And I didn't like the fact that he just decided to kiss her in the moment. Then why do you like Ben kissing Abigail? Because I feel like Abigail also was like into it. And we, okay. Anyway, the third part of the falling action here, the conclusion is there's this old grandmotherly woman that's part of the tribe. And she kind of pulls Sam aside and tells him that, oh, wait there's more treasure like the ring that he now has. And she says it's somewhere towards the Northwest. And she knows this because she had at one point talked to a colonist who was on the hunt for it. And he, that colonist gave her a wooden medallion with a drawing on it and said something about it relating to this larger treasure. Now I have a couple of thoughts here. All right, number one, okay. this to me is pointing to Cibola. Because, and if they did, they did it very cleverly. Because if it, there's more treasure like the gold ring, that implies that the treasure is gold. And it's in the Northwest. Now think of where Jamestown is in Virginia and think of where they find Cibola in National Treasure 2. It's Northwest. My geography's not good, but well, I'll trust you. <laughs> please trust me, it's Northwest. And I think, <laughs> I think that's the implication here. And at this point, I'm really excited. Because at the beginning, Emily, I will admit, I was really confused and wondering about how this book series would actually work in relation to the movies. In my mind, there were two options here. Either each book ends in them finding a massive treasure, which seems unrealistic. Like there's no family has that much luck. And also if they kept finding treasures, no way would the Gates family name be tarnished by the time we meet Ben in National right. Treasure, right? So that's one option, doesn't seem likely. Second option is all books progress toward probably the Templar treasure, the Charlotte clue. But how do you make reading the books feel worth it if there's no payoff at the end of each book, if they haven't found anything? So this book in the end really seemed to do both, right? They found a treasure, but they're still progressing towards the bigger treasure. Um, so there's like a mini treasure payoff, but we can continue the treasure hunt into the next book, which seemed to answer the other question that I had, which was whether we're going to follow the same ancestor through all the books or a different generation in each book. And so to me, it really seemed after reading Changing Tides that it would be the former. We'd be following Sam and Liz, presumably, throughout this series because the next thing they have to work on is this medallion. But I will say I did a quick read of the back of the next book, like the summary. And that's not the case. It's a totally different ancestor in a totally different time period. There is also not to, okay, so it's not the next one. I think it's the third or the fourth one. I forget what it's called. There's a train on the front of it. Ah. And I was like, mm, we're going to have to be jumping some time periods. Yeah, I guess the other thing 
that I was thinking here, I really did hope, like I said before, that the books would eventually lead to the Charlotte clue or even to like the birth of Ben Gates. I don't know. Um, making them like really mesh with national treasure as we know it. But not only do I think that that's unlikely given now how we know the structure of this first book is leading into the next one, but it would also, that like lead in would never come to fruition again, since the fifth and sixth books weren't published. Mm -hmm. So that's a little bit sad. I do wish we could find out. And I I assume once we're done book four, we're really going to want to know what's supposed to happen in the next two books. But I will say that regardless these books, I think, are a really great example of how National Treasure could have been merchandised if Disney cared. Definitely. I think the fact that, what, this book came out in 2007, right? I think so, yeah. Um, As we leaf through our copies of the book. <laughs> um, I feel like, I yeah, I don't know. I feel like they could have done, like, this was by Disney Press right this this like was published by them so like we being the national treasure fans that we were even back in that day like we should have been aware that these books were a thing Mm -hmm. and the fact that like we weren't until you just like happened to like come upon them even when we were like two years not two years even when we were like a year into the podcast you came across them it it just like it astounds me that it really feels like the franchise got kind of a short end of the stick so much so and there's even so much acknowledgement in this one book this one how many pages is this like yeah give it some credit it's 279 pages um this 279 page book there's so much here that we could like treat like a new national treasure movie we could spend a whole season going over this if we really wanted to we could go over science points we could go over history points we could go over so and it's a book and books are generally more commonly regarded as educational materials than movies true so so much here so much could have been done with merchandising something else i'll say um really quickly not to be missed is a postscript, sort of like an epilogue at the end of this book. Um, but it's actually the author explaining, much like our Hunt for Facts episodes, how all of the people and places that are referenced are real, but explaining how like the treasure hunt situations, of course, are fictional. But like it explains, for instance, um, I'm gonna read, I'm gonna read one little bit here just for reference so that people know what kind of vibe we're going for. Quote, most people have heard of Captain John Smith and his friend Pocahontas, also known as Matawaka. Pocahontas's father, Wahun Sunakak, known as Chief Powhatan, was also a real person, as was his brother, who became head of the Powhatan Confederacy when Wahuna Sunakak died in 1618. Marachana was also real. Little is known about her, but she is recorded as Pocahontas's sister or half-sister. And it continues. Like, there are so many other things we reference here. Governor Thomas Gates was apparently, like, the real governor. That, that was mind-blowing to me. And it makes me wonder, like, whoa, is that, did that have any bearing on National Treasure's choice of the surname of their main character? Um, There's a tidbit about the Susan Constant was a real ship. 
the lost colony of Roanoke is a well-known historical mystery to everyone except for Emily Black. <laughs> the, <laughs> the fact that the only clue was the word Croatoan carved at the abandoned settlement and the letters CRO carved elsewhere nearby. Like, this is the makings, the beginnings of a Hunt for Facts episode. And I loved that. I thought that was so cool. I think overall, this was this was a really fun experience. I, as I've been saying, you know, regarding the National Treasure streaming series, I am very into the telling of these stories in the form of treasure hunts. Um, and so it didn't bother me as much as I guess I thought it would that we weren't getting like Ben, Abigail, and Riley in this. I would say that I honestly personally really enjoyed it from the standpoint of it just being like, Ooh, we're on a treasure hunt. Let's go see where we go. But I will admit that I did miss Ben Riley and Abigail a little bit. Absolutely. I completely agree with you. Um, so that bodes really interestingly, I think, not just for the TV series, but our next episode, which we'll preview in just a moment. But before we do, we need to know what y'all thought about this experience. First of all, did you know that this book series exists? Are you tempted to try to find it and read it yourself? Did we do such a good job that you feel like you completely understand the book and all of its national treasure connections that um, that you can just follow along with us from here on out? Golly, I hope so, because that's what we tried to do here today. But hey, please tell us what you thought. Did anything from this story surprise you? Were there missed opportunities? Were there really clever tidbits that we didn't even cover? Please tell us. And you can find us to tell us on Twitter and Instagram at NT Hunt Podcast. You, as you know, if you're listening to us now, you can find us to listen to on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any streaming platform that you prefer. Uh, and you can also find us on our website at nthuntpodcast.com. Awesome. And as we've previewed about 85 times at this point, um, next time on the show, we will be covering book number two in the Gates Family Mystery Series. That book is called Midnight Ride. And yes, I'm holding it up to the screen so Emily can see it, even though none of you all can see it. Midnight Ride by Katherine Hapka, published once again by Disney Press. Feel free to grab yourself a copy and follow along or just tune in next time and we'll tell you everything you need to know about it and probably some things you didn't need to know as well. But hey, until then, I'm Aubrey. And I'm Emily. And thank you so much for joining us on our national treasure hunt. Thank you.